Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Damn Fine TV Podcast Weekly Watch. I'm your host, Jasmine, entertainment writer and TV enthusiast. This week on the show, I'm back to discuss American Horror Story 1984, Episode 6. This was the 100th episode of American Horror Story, and I'm not sure if we all just got our hopes up a little too high, but my initial reaction, that Chrissy Teigen cringe face meme that we all know and like way overuse but still love. Anyways, thanks so much for joining me, everyone. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show, guys. As always, before I dive into American Horror Story, I'm going to do a little bit of This Week in TV. So my recommendations are actually two shows that I talked about being super excited for last week. So the first is Living With Yourself, the Paul Rudd double feature. I mentioned last week that I really didn't know... I mean, I didn't really know what to expect from this show. I didn't really watch any trailers. I wasn't sure about the storyline. I just knew there was going to be two Paul Rudds. And this went above and beyond anything that I might have even expected, I think. Like, this was not at all what I pictured when I heard two Paul Rudds in a Netflix comedy. It was just so sweet and funny, but also very... It had this very melancholy ambiance. It was very emotionally honest. It explored concepts of cloning in a way that I really just, again, didn't see coming, but also just didn't kind of expect from the show and haven't really seen played out before, at least on television and within this kind of half hour format. You know, I watched Orphan Black. That's one of my favorite shows of all time. But when they were dealing, I mean, a lot of the themes that they would discuss in that show had to do with bodily autonomy and kind of fighting the system and, you know, figuring out, I mean, yes, there's always going to be themes of like, who am I if I'm a clone? Like, what does that mean for my consciousness? But this was like Orphan Black. I mean, it always managed to make things personal because we were following the storylines and the lives of just a few clones, right? But with this show, it was... It was like a very microscopic view of that because we're just looking at this one human and their clone and what it means for interactions with people like their wife and their friends and their job and what it even means because this clone thinks that it's you. So does it have does it have the right to your memories? Like what do you do with those memories when you're just actually just a clone of a person Um, What about all of these things that you wanted out of your life or that you think you wanted out of your life because you have this person's memories and this person's consciousness and this person's passion? And it went a lot more in depth than than I thought it would or that I even thought it had time to do. This, I mean, and speaking of that, this was such an easy watch. It was eight episodes, some episodes less than half hour, some just a little over. And my, well, Tyler, you guys know Tyler. Tyler and I watched it all in one day, kind of spread throughout the day. But it was such a, it was, it was like emotionally fulfilling, but very easy to get through, if that makes sense. But yeah, it was a lot less sci-fi than a lot of cloney things that I see or or clone-ish things that I see. I don't know. It just felt a lot more relatable in a way. So if you haven't watched it, at least check out a few a few episodes to see if it's right for you. I mean, I don't know how 
you can go wrong. Two Paul Rudds do not make a wrong, as we have learned two Paul Rudds make a right. The second show I'm going to recommend is Watchmen. Holy moly. Okay, so if you guys follow me on Twitter, this is the HBO show that I talked about last week where I knew it came from either graphic novels or a comic book or something like that. I think there was also a film made about it a while ago. But that I another show that I really knew nothing about, I just knew it was uh, done by showrunner Damon Lindelof and that it was going to have Regina King, and that was enough for me to kind of at least give it a couple of episodes. But wow, if you guys follow me on Twitter, you probably saw my review, which was essentially... I don't really have a clear idea of everything that's going on here, but I do know that I love it. So here's the thing. I wasn't like confused. It's not a hard show to follow along to. I think it's kind of par for the course with a Damon Lindelof joint that there are going to be things that unravel throughout the season. So you're not meant to really understand all of the ins and outs of everything. And I love this kind of storytelling because There are so many pilots and premieres that just spoon feed you so much backstory and so much information so that you feel, I don't know if it's that writers don't trust their audience to be smart enough to figure things out. I don't know if they don't trust themselves within their own writing that, you know, you can introduce things in other ways. You don't, it doesn't all have to be uh, like a, a voiceover setup or it doesn't all have to be spelled out for us. There are ways to tell a story that, where things can just sort of um, develop very organically like that and gaps will be filled in along the way. You know what I mean? And I think that's just, like I said, that's par for the course with good writers in general, but certainly somebody like Damon Lindelof that prefers a sort of both ambiguous and sort of mysterious form of storytelling, which is totally my jam. I love it because the other thing about that kind of writing is that it makes you really pay a lot more attention than a show that's just going to spoon feed it to you, right? So you're forced to put down the phone, you're forced to pay attention to the screen, you're forced to think harder about certain things that you see because you become part of the show in that way, right? Like you are playing along in a sense. Like, you know, you have to, I mean, it's just smart TV watching. Essentially, it's using your critical thinking while you're watching a story, which, yeah, um, Anyways, I guess I could fangirl about the writing all day, but it was also great music, fantastic visuals. I mean, it had a little bit of intrigue. It had a lot of action. It had some good comedy. And Regina King, oh my goodness. I am so glad that she and Damon Lindelof are working together again. I think they make such a great fit. I mean, she, wow, I love her in this role. I cannot wait to see more from her. And you know, like, yeah, this was just a really good premiere in the sense that it it had a lot of stage to set. And I think that it did it in a way where, you know, a lot went on, but it didn't it didn't feel bulky or challenging or like a chore to watch. Uh, unlike some episodes where watching it the second time was I, I'll, all I wanted to do was rip my hair out. <clears throat> American Horror Story. Um, but anyways. If you haven't seen either of those, they are definitely worth a watch. Uh, Like I said, Living With Yourself is on Netflix. Watchmen is an HBO show. All right, and I don't have any... I didn't watch anything this week that made me go, oh my God, like, uh, hand to the forehead slap, what a fucking stinker. Nothing like that. And I think next week I'm going to maybe change up the format of This Week in TV and do something more like uh, best episode of the week 
maybe best character of the week and then kind of an overall recommendation because we're coming towards the end of pilot season so there's not a lot of new stuff coming out as often but for now there are still things that I'm looking forward to they actually came out last week same day as living with yourself there's two shows modern love which is an Amazon Prime show and looking for Alaska which is on Hulu Um, I just didn't get a chance to check them out this weekend I was actually recording a podcast for upcoming shows. I teased it in the first episode of this weekly watch series, but uh, doing the best of the decade with some friends and family talking about our favorite TV shows. So I was busy with that over the weekend. I was busy watching Living With Yourself, and uh, my fiance actually ran in a marathon this past weekend, and he did amazing. So good for him. Whatever. Can you tell that I am stalling to actually get into American Horror Story? I don't know. Right? Like, I don't have that many shows to talk about, but I'm here talking about Tyler's Marathon. Anyways. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to getting into those shows. They are both getting really good ratings so far, so that's exciting. And finally, I can dig into the Castle Rock premiere as soon as I'm done recording and editing all of this because it's also on Wednesday nights, and unfortunately... I'm just salty right now. I'm sure it'll be fine. But unfortunately, my commitment was to American Horror Story, so I kind of saved Castle Rock for, um, I think it's going to be quite a treat for after all of this. Okay, guys, what have you been watching this week? Uh, Did you check out Living With Yourself or Watchmen? Uh, Is there anything you saw that was like just awful aside from this episode? Anything you're looking forward to that you think I should check out that you want to hear my thoughts on? All of that kind of stuff. Hit me up on the socials at TV on Twitter, at Jasmine underscore Lila underscore on Instagram. And guys, real quick, if I could ask, leave a rating for the podcast, maybe subscribe, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. That'd be super appreciated. Tell a friend about the show if you like what you hear. And um, with that, I will officially stop procrastinating. Let's get into American Horror Story. So let's dive into this week's episode, and it was just called episode 100, a little underwhelming, which I would say is my kind of overall opinion of the episode. It was written by Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk, which I don't know if you know those guys, but uh, they're kind of the creators of the show, and I would kind of expect more from them. But uh, moving on, the director was Lonnie Peristere, Lonnie Peristere. Uh, who has also done episodes of Banshee. He's done a few episodes of American Horror Story, and he's actually going to direct an upcoming episode of Castle Rock Season 2. Honestly, nothing to really uh, dive into there. It was a pretty standard episode. So my overall thoughts before I kind of dive into what happened, like I said, underwhelming is really the best word to describe how I feel But more than that, I'm just a little bummed out. Maybe I was just thinking that it was going to be a little bit more than what it was because it was the 100th episode. And all day before recording, I've been kind of trying to remove my feelings, my my sort of extra textual knowledge that this is the 100th episode of the series and just trying to look at it as an episode within this season. But it's, it's hard to compartmentalize that stuff because... Especially when you've got people on social media really hyping up the episode, so you get really excited for stuff. Now, I couldn't watch the episode live. I had to wait until it was uploaded to the FX website. 
So I did have to stay up late and perhaps I was cranky. Perhaps it was not the best mood to be watching the episode in. So I will say that as a kind of a disclaimer, but I don't know. It just, it just didn't, it just didn't live up to what I thought it was going to be. And that's obviously very personal. I'm sure some people enjoyed it just as well as the rest of the season, though I have seen kind of a consensus that this wasn't what people were expecting. You know, I I think it had a lot of work to do to kind of uh, set the stage maybe for the rest of the season because it was quite a pivot. Like we kind of finished things up really in the last episode or we actually, you know, we wrapped up a lot of things. So this had sort of, it sort of had to bear the brunt of introducing us to a whole new, not a whole new plot line, but what we should sort of expect going forward for the rest of the season. So I know it had a lot of work to do and um, I'm just going to say that Roanoke did it better in the same kind of a situation, but uh, yeah. So this week, I'm just going to go briefly through what happened and then just touch on the stuff I didn't like, stuff I liked. You guys know the drill. So basically, uh, we jump forward to 1985 and the Jingles and Richard Ramirez buddy cop comedy has turned quite sour because Jingles has had his fill of the murder biz and of Richard Ramirez. You know, he... It seems that the deal that he made with the devil doesn't seem to have changed him. In fact, he's kind of probably the best version of himself he's been in quite a long time. And so he wants out and he eventually, um, he, Richard Ramirez goes into this convenience store. There's a newspaper that has his face on the cover and, and Jingles winds up kind of outing Ramirez to this group of women that are around this store that uh, Ramirez is in. And then they go and grab their community and then they collectively beat the shit out of Ramirez, which I was like, okay, this is, I guess, a plus side of the episode. But then later we see that, you know, the episode is kind of, it does some flashbacks to, well, it starts in 85 and then it does some flashbacks to 85, but really we've kind of moved forward to 1989. So, and then at that point in the story, um, Jingles has actually married somebody uh apparently he saved her life and there's kind of this weird conflation there between sex work and serial killing and how they have to put the past behind them and I don't know how I feel about that that was really weird but uh Jingles is now working at a blockbuster type store and we're sort of led to assume that he came up with the catchphrase be kind rewind which I I guess that's cute one night he comes home to find that his wife has been murdered and we're going to assume that it's probably Richard Ramirez because of the note that's left behind, which will make sense as I dive into the rest of what's happened. But uh, the note that's left behind says Satan will have his revenge or something like that. So kind of leads me to believe that this was Richard Ramirez kind of saying like, hey, you made this deal with the devil and then you punked out on me. So Jingles decides that he's going to head back to Camp Redwood and end this whole nightmarish ordeal. And he leaves his son behind with his wife's sister. And I'm wondering if this little baby, Bobby, is going to turn out to be some sort of, I don't know, holy child or he's going to, we're going to flash even more forward into the future and he's going to end up playing a role. I don't know. But that's the deal with Jingles. We then move forward to 1989, as I said, and Camp Redwood has sort of reopened to the public uh, slash uh, true crime tourists and bird watchers. And Montana and Xavier are now this killer couple. They're kind of just living their best lives in what we are to assume is kind of a purgatory 
We finally see the counselors from the 70s, the ones who were taking part in the threesome in the very first episode, and they think it's so gauche. Like, they are so over wanting to interact with humans, which might explain why we never saw them before. They were probably just hiding. They really seemed to want nothing to do with this. And amongst the group, we also see that Chet wants his revenge on Margaret. There's a very interesting interaction between Ray, Montana, and Xavier, which I'm going to dive into later because it was actually kind of a highlight for me. So let's move on to Margaret and Trevor, who, oh boy, they are married. More on that in a minute. But Margaret is now this real estate mogul and she's buying up what I'm going to call murder houses. You know, these like places where awful killings took place, uh, places where mostly where serial killers um, either killed a whole bunch of people or had cults, stuff like that. One of those properties happens to be Briarcliff, which is, of course, from season two, The Asylum. So that was a cool little tie-in. I think at this point, There are tie-ins for all of the seasons, so everything kind of now for sure, for sure exists within the same universe. I feel like we knew that in Apocalypse, but, and then even earlier this season, I mean, the whole Richard Ramirez of it all, who already appeared in Hotel, but the nod to Briarcliff is nevertheless still a bit of fun. It's always fun to see stuff from previous seasons. And Margaret is turning these properties into what she likes to call immersive experiences. And I, I, I don't know, I don't really get her game, but I'm kind of digging it, whatever it is. And she says in this interview, you know, I used to think, why me? But then finally I realized, why not me? And it's like, okay, that explains nothing, but also so much because it just says so much about who Margaret is. Anyway, she's definitely not playing with a full deck, but she's still a lot of fun. She gave up on God, and now she curses, you guys. She says fuck, like, twice, I think. And later on through the episode, we realize that kind of her murder theme parks, or whatever you want to call them, aren't doing that great until an idea sparks after seeing a report that murder has returned to Camp Redwood, which I'm curious as to why they're only finding this out now, because it seems like Montana and Xavier have been killing for, like, four years at this point. But anyways... She decides she's going to host a big music and food festival at Camp Redwood. And she's like, don't you guys want to be scared? She wants to baptize the place. I don't know. I'm actually super interested to see what her whole deal is with buying up these properties and, and turning them into, like I said, like murder theme parks or something. So then Trevor is, oh, my little baby Trevor. He is a little worse for wear. He's actually married to Margaret now, which at first I was like, what the fuck? And then we flash back to 85, of course, to realize that um, when he woke, he he never died. Uh, yeah, like spoiler alert, he was never dead. So that's why we didn't get a ghost Trevor, I'm assuming. And um, we realized that he woke up from a coma and Margaret was there waiting for him. He kind of tries to blackmail her because he remembers what happens and he, he knows that she's rich now. He wants some of her money. And she's like, sure, sure, sure. But we're going to get married if that's the way you want it because you can't testify against me if we're married. So I like that little uh, twisteroo that she played on him there. I mean, it's, it's kind of a win-win, kind of. I don't know. But yeah, Trevor is definitely not doing great. He's a cokehead. I'm, I'm sad to see where his character has gone. And I'll talk about that more in a bit. 
Brooke has been in prison. She has been appealing her sentence, but she we learned that she kind of had this last big appeal and it was denied, so she has been sentenced to death. She's going to be executed. Ramirez is also in the same prison and she's walking to her kind of her new cell in what I assume is solitary confinement. She passes by Ramirez's cell and he's like, yo, last chance. You can make a deal with the devil and he can save you. She turns it down. And then later on in the episode, when it's time for this execution, she knows that Margaret is watching, which is also such a super creepy thing that people can go and watch these executions. Like, what a world, man. She tells Margaret she's going to burn in hell because I guess somehow she knows that it was actually Margaret that did all of this. I'm not super clear on how she knows all that, but whatever. Uh, And then she is given this lethal injection The person who is administering the lethal injection is wearing like what I want to call a gothic beekeeper suit and we never see the person's face but then it's revealed that it was Donna or not Rita all along and she actually, I mean she either didn't give Brooke the actual lethal injection and then just pretended to feel the pulse and say that it was gone or she did but then dosed her up with some epinephrine or something that would revive her from this. Unclear on all of the details there, but the point is Donna is then revealed to be this person um, that brings her back to life. So Brooke and Donna are still in the game. Finally, Richard Ramirez has a visitor who I think is just called Red, and she looks super familiar. If you guys have watched the, the new Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks The Return or Twin Peaks Season 3, whatever you want to call it, Her, this woman's sister, this woman who plays Red, her sister actually played this character from the first couple episodes who, I can't remember her name now, but she is pursuing this guy who is watching The Box in New York. Twin Peaks fans will know what I'm talking about, but I thought it was her, and then I realized there's this, like, family of sisters that are all, uh, that are all actors, so that was who she is. And she brings him news of this music fest that's going down at Camp Redwood. And she's like, babe, I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you a bootleg copy of Billy Idol's performance. Because that's the other thing. Margaret has somehow gotten Billy Idol on the ticket and a whole bunch of other artists. But to Ramirez, all of the other artists on the bill are nothing compared to Idol. They're just one-hit wonders that are going to fade into obscurity once the 80s is over. And he's kind of afraid that the same thing is going to happen to him, which, fine, fuck you. But he wants to evolve. He wants to go beyond just being a just a piece of trivia from the pop culture of the 80s. So he does this kind of ritual in his prison cell, and it releases some sort of spirit. Maybe it's Satan himself. That spirit enters the prison guard and helps Ramirez escape, which is why I'm assuming that he is the one that killed Jingles' wife and left the note. Anyways, that is the episode in kind of a nutshell. So let's get to my highlights, my lowlights. I don't know what else to call them. The We'll get to the good stuff and the shitty stuff. So you know what? Let's start with the stuff I didn't like. Okay, so pretty much the whole episode. I mean... There was just nothing overly exciting about this. It felt like a very, um, not a filler episode for sure, because we did get plot movement. That's, there's no denying that. But there was just nothing overly mind-blowing or intriguing 
I mean, with the exception of like one or two small things that I wouldn't actually classify as anything big. But anyways, my biggest issue is that this kind of felt like the Richard Ramirez show. They opened the episode with him. There's a lot of interaction between kind of him and Brooke. Then there's this uh, meeting with his, I guess, his girlfriend. I don't really know. This woman named Red. There was just a lot of Ramirez in this episode. And I just kind of felt like if this is turning into the Richard Ramirez, like if this is American Horror Story, Richard Ramirez, I kind of feel like I want to be out because I just don't. I'm not that invested in his character. I don't think he really adds anything to this season that couldn't have been done without him or like I've said before in past episodes, somebody that could have been similar to him but with a different name, a different backstory. I just I just don't see what he adds that the season couldn't succeed without. And honestly, that's nothing against Zach Villa because, or Via, whatever it is, because I think he's actually doing, like, I don't like the character, but I can see that objectively he's doing a great job in the role. When he's supposed to be melodramatic, he nails it. When he's supposed to be creepy, he nails it. I buy that he is this person. So whenever I say I hate the Richard Ramirez stuff, it's really nothing against the actor or his portrayal. Uh, The other thing I really didn't like was the turn for Trevor. I think this is a shitty way for this character to end up. He was like one of the few heroes of the show. And to see him all, uh, I don't know, he's essentially a cokehead. He's kind of maybe turned to the dark side. It's a little bit hard to get a read on him because he's kind of hot and cold. Like at first he's, he's like... He's watching that interview with them on the lifestyles of, of the rich and famous and he it cuts to him watching it. He snorts a line of coke and he's like, bullshit. So he's clearly not, he hasn't bought into the bullshit of him and Margaret. And then he has an argument with her, but then they start having sex. Maybe it was just angry sex, whatever. But, and then like during Brooke's execution, It's kind of hard to tell if he's just playing the role of Margaret's husband. You can tell that he's uncomfortable in certain moments, but I also wonder, like, would you just be uncomfortable watching somebody die? Like, that's an uncomfortable and unsettling situation to be in. So I'm, I'm, I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait to see. Maybe he is actually playing Margaret. Maybe he's actually on her team. I really don't know, but this is not... The trajectory. This is not the arc that I was hoping for for Trevor. You know, and then I was also going to put Xavier in this section because Xavier was also kind of one of the heroes of the first half of the season. And now he's very firmly on the murder train with Montana. But there's something about it. And I guess it's the way that he explains it. He's like, I tried to do good things. In fact, I died doing what he thought was the most heroic thing. And it didn't save him. It still kept him in this purgatory. So what's the point? So that I understand. There's more motivation there. There's more There's more underlying understanding of why he's made this turn. And honestly, he seems happy. He looks great doing it. So I'm like not even bothered by that. But with Trevor, it just seems like I just feel sad for his character. And I, I just don't like what they did to him. And then the other thing is that we have moved so forward in time now. Is this really 
American Horror Story 1984? Or is this American Horror Story the 80s, but also almost the 90s? You know, like I'm already starting to feel uh, the 90s start to creep in with stuff like fashion and the set dressing and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not, I'm sad that we're kind of already losing the vibe of the 80s, you know? And I don't really know how you kind of come back from that because we have, I mean, unless with flashbacks, which I assume there's going to be, but we have firmly moved the plot into 1989. And so it just feels, it doesn't have that same like heart of the 80s vibe that I was so looking forward to before the season started that I was so loving as we were moving through the first five episodes. So that's kind of a drag. But Let's pivot now and talk about a few things that I did like. You know, credit where credit is due. Okay, I kind of mentioned this in the breakdown of the episode, but this this installment had a lot to do. It had a lot to figure out and a lot to, to set up. It had, I don't know, prove isn't really the right word, but that's what's coming to mind right now. Like, it just had... A lot riding on it and I I always admire when a show kind of takes takes a risk like this and it at least tries to do something that people aren't expecting you know on the last episode when Mel's and I were talking we were both really excited that we didn't know where the season was going that was a cool place to leave us in and I guess that because perhaps because that was so exciting that when you get something that doesn't really live up to that, it's just, it's just a letdown. But I will say this, uh, and I think I said it even in the breakdown of the episode, but Roanoke did this better. I loved the pivot, you know, halfway through that season. I think that's kind of controversial. I think Roanoke is not a season that is, uh, there, there is no big consensus behind it that people loved it. I think there's a lot more hate out there for that season, but I just think that it, um, I think that the way it threaded together the sort of two halves of that season was a lot more consistent and cohesive. So I guess that's kind of a neg in a way. It's like, well, you had a lot to do, but you didn't really do it. But I still admire, I'll always admire when a show takes a big swing, even if they miss, at least they're trying. Yeah. So anyways, I loved Margaret. I I was so wishy-washy on her through the first five episodes, but I really like this turn that she's taken. I mean, for her outfits alone, my goodness, those necklaces, that hair. I have seen some people online saying that her look was inspired by Ivanka Trump or Ivana Trump. I'm sorry, one of the Trump women. I don't really care which one it is. That's cool. I like that we're seeing those um, tastes kind of blend into the show. She just looked fantastic. And then her arc in general, I just think it's, I'm perplexed by it, which I like. I like being, I like when not everything is spelled out, you know, and you kind of, it's like I was talking about with the Watchmen. I don't really get what Margaret's doing, but I want to, and I want to keep watching to find out. And I think actually she might be the most interesting character in the show now. This was also a great episode for music. I mean, the past few episodes, they haven't really been able to utilize a lot of the 80s music because there's just been a lot of score. I mean, this definitely was not the scariest episode. There was barely any scares, I would say. So I think there was a lot more room to use music from the 80s. I mean, we had Black Sabbath, more Billy Idol, of course, Ario Speedwagon, The Smiths. There's a lot of great tracks. 
And then the final scene, um, I was a little concerned that we weren't going to see much more of Angelica Ross. I'm glad she's back. I'm intrigued to see what will happen between the Brooke and Donna relationship. And of course, when I say Donna, I mean not Rita. But I feel like we've moved into a place where we can call her Donna now. But yeah, I'm intrigued to see where that relationship goes because last we left it, it was not in a good place. I mean, Donna basically served her up on a silver platter for somebody to kill. But now she's saved her life. And I assume they're going to make some kind of alliance. And who knows? I don't know what they're... Maybe they're going to join forces with Jingles. That could be exciting. So overall, those are those are the highlights. Those are the lowlights. For dialogue, there's one kind of throwaway line that's um, Jingles' boss at the Blockbuster-type store says, he says, there's lots of opportunities in VHS. And I just think that's a funny little nod because we know in the future there's really not a lot of opportunities for VHS, but it's so of the times It was a cute line. But actually, my favorite dialogue is kind of a a whole interaction between Ray, Xavier, and Montana. It was funny. It gave us an idea of where these three characters are at uh, at this point in time. And it also sets up the idea that there is still more to come with this whole uh, purgatory or just kind of ghost land business. So... It's this interaction. God damn it, Montana! Here comes Cranky There's Pants. There's a dead body on the dock, rotting in broad fucking daylight! Chill. Just clean it up like you always do. No, you can't kill every single person that wanders through here! Yes, yes I can. You can. There are no rules for the dead. You don't know that. You don't know why we're stuck here. No one does, Ray. But you know what I realized? Nothing we do matters. When I was alive, in the last moments of my life, I tried everything I could to be good. I tried to save Birdie. I fucking saved Margaret. And she killed me. And now I kill people. And guess what? Nothing happens. Being good got me nowhere, but being bad feels really good. So you and the old timers in the entire fucking universe can suck it. Holy shit, look. Oh my god. Bitch is finally gonna get hers. Convicted on 11 counts of first-degree murder. This can't be. She didn't do anything wrong. She killed me, Ray. Wasn't that wrong? That was wrong. Yeah. Ray? So that line from Ray about we don't know why we're here, I think that that was the perfect way to let us know that, yes, there is still more going on here, and hopefully that will pay off in future episodes. Like I mentioned, this episode wasn't really scary, but the description of a lethal injection and what it entails was very unsettling. And I just want to take the Richard Ramirez out of it all and say to Zach Villa or or Via that the voice and the way that he describes this process was so uncomfortable and I think that was the point and then mixed in with the music and the fact that you know that he is somehow kind of I think telepathically communicating with her and then she sees what I'm just going to call a vision of him in her cell and it just it also made the actual scene of Brooke's execution that much more oh gut churning because you know everything that's kind of happening because of this 
very detailed expression that Ramirez gives us of what happens. And it just kind of made me also think about the fact that this is a real life thing and it's personal opinion fucked up. So I don't know about scary, like it's not going to keep me up at night, um, but it was definitely the most horror element within, within the episode. And then finally, the best use of song. This was definitely a tougher one because, like I said, there was so much great music in this episode, but it's got to go to I Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore by Ario Speedwagon. Jingles, like, is sick of Richard Ramirez's music. He pulls out Ramirez's tape, puts in his own tape. Remember tapes? I bet a lot of you actually don't, but tapes were like CDs. No, you probably don't know CDs. Tapes were like MP3s. Um, uh, it was like streaming music, but on a on a physical thing. Never mind. You probably maybe get it from watching the episode. But anyways, tapes, right? Cassette tapes. Wow. It's it's just like there's no opportunities with VHS. There's really no opportunities with tapes. But um, anyways, yeah. When he puts it on, it just looks like he's on the verge of tears. And of course. What I've been loving this season about the use of music is just the very on-the-nose way that they've been using it, where the lyrics always really line up with the scene that it's been used in and not in a very subtle way, but I think that's the perfect way to play it in this show. So it definitely goes to that. So that pretty much wraps things up. I uh, I kind of just wanted to do a quick episode this week. I didn't even want to have, I was supposed to have a guest on and then I decided against it because I was like, I don't even want to make anyone talk about this show. You know, if I have someone on next week, I'll ask what their thoughts were on this episode and maybe some stuff is going to become a little bit clearer next episode. But yeah, I don't know. Next week, I guess, is going to be the Halloween episode because this music fest is taking place on Halloween weekend. Next week's episode, I think, is a day before Halloween. So maybe we're gearing up for maybe the 101st episode will be the big uh, sort of extravaganza that we were all pretty excited to see. Maybe Billy Idol will show up. Can you imagine if they actually got Billy Idol? I mean, he's not going to look like he did in 1989, but that would be funny. And I just kind of also have this feeling that the Billy Idol of it all was meant to draw Richard Ramirez back to that place. I I have this feeling like, I don't know, I think Margaret is more of a Satan type figure than we've given her, not credit, but, you know, she was supposed to be this God loving woman. But I think she's actually closer to Satan than anything else. And there's some reason that I feel she wants Richard Ramirez back in the mix at this music festival. So I think using Billy Idol was actually uh, very, very purposeful in that sense. So fingers crossed we get something a little better than this or a lot better. That would be great too, but next week. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. I hope that uh, it was, uh, I don't know, maybe more exciting than the episode or at least a nice little companion. I know I didn't dive too deep this week. I don't even really think the episode sort of warranted that get in touch. What did you think? Did you totally love it? Am I totally off my rocker that I hated it? At damn fine TV on Twitter at Jasmine underscore Lila underscore on Instagram. And 
do me a little favor, guys. Subscribe to the show. Leave me a rating or a review if you have the time. I would greatly appreciate that. Tell a friend about the show if you've been enjoying it. Word of mouth is always appreciated. And yeah, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. So please do get in touch. And you can always drop me an email, damnfinepod at gmail.com. So until next week, guys, if you're watching TV, make sure it's damn fine TV.